Welcome to the Talking Security Podcast. We will talk about items related to Microsoft security. Hi everyone, welcome at a new episode of the Talking Security Podcast. My name is Frans Houdenderop and today I've invited some special MVPs to the show to have a discussion about advanced hunting within the Microsoft security solutions. So Maarten Goed, Olaf Hartung and Alex Benoit, welcome to the show. Can you introduce yourself within two sentences? Alex, could you start? Sure. Hey, Franz. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, my name is Alex Benoit. I'm the CEO of the Next PySec. We are a partner of Microsoft that is solely focused on the security workloads. Thank you, Olaf. Yeah, thanks for having me. My name is Olaf Hartung. I'm one of the founders of Falcon Force, where I do a lot of defensive work, especially on the Microsoft stack, where we try to hunt and try to build a lot of detection and defensive mechanisms. Great. Welcome. I'm Martin. Yes, thank you, Frans. I'm Maarten Goed, Director of Cybersecurity at Wartel. We are the Microsoft partner for the Netherlands and Belgium, running a 24-7 managed detection and response based on Azure Sentinel and Microsoft Defender. So welcome, all of you. At first, before we're heading into advanced hunting within the Microsoft security solutions, let's have some thoughts about the two big issues that are going around in the world at the moment. Print Nightmare, a Microsoft print spooler issue, I think. Olaf, maybe you can elaborate a little bit on that issue. What is it? What is impacting at the moment? Well, technically, it's a way to at least abuse the print spooler to uh, to get yeah, local admin uh, privileges on a, on a machine that you're running it against, which can be quite hurtful if you run this against a machine that has quite a big role in an Active Directory, for instance potentially you become domain administrator that way. And there's no patch for it yet. Yeah, and Microsoft has bring out a hotfix for that. I saw something going around, but that does not fix everything, I think. No, that's correct. I think the hotfix is for an earlier CVE, and this is a slightly different variant that is actually still very effective. Uh, we tested it today in our lab against a fully patched uh, environment, and every machine is still uh, capable of running that, uh, that exploit. Yeah, and if we are using Microsoft Security Solutions, how can we detect this vulnerability, Martin? Well, I think one of the things to look at, of course, is uh, the endpoint itself where the print spooler services are being abused to do the local privilege escalation. And certainly in the Microsoft Defender suite and Defender for Endpoint, you'll see parts of that attack happening. And certainly if you look at the bigger picture where local privilege escalation is a part of a certain movement that an attacker is doing, then combining information from Defender for Identity with Defender for Endpoint, etc., will give you a total image of what's happening. But certainly Defender for Endpoint will play a role here in detection to see what types of challenges are happening against the print spooler. Alex, do you have any thoughts about the print nightmare? Have you seen it in the wild at the moment? No, I, uh, we haven't seen it yet, but it's interesting. I mean, we had these sprint spooler issues. I mean, th this is not the first time, right? I mean, I can uh, already imagine four times these issues within the last, let's say, five to seven years. So it's interesting that this kind of vulnerability or privilege escalation repeats with the sprint spooler. And 
I'm curious to hear, I mean, the fix is one side, of course, but actually I'm, I'm curious to hear what Microsoft's strategy is to finally shut this door for attackers in general. Yeah, and if we look at Principaler, uh, one of the main issues is a Principaler on the domain controller. So what are your thoughts about it? Why should we use a Principaler on the domain controller? I have seen an announcement from, I think even Raviv has uh, has been one, right, Martin? I think you, you mentioned that also in the group that they said, okay, just disable the service. Is that what it was? Well, there was some official guidance from my MSRC that uh, got posted earlier in the past few days. And certainly one of the points they conveyed in that guidance was disable the principle. However, I think within the first 24 or 48 hours, people are already proving that even with the principle disabled, they could still use the exploit through other communications channels. So yeah, even today I saw an updated version of Mimikat that already reworked the uh, option to just use it even when the principle has been disabled. I love this. Uh, I love this behavior of Benjamin. Every time we have something like that in the Microsoft community, he's like going big with a short video, just you know, abusing this particular incident, whatever it is. So I seen that as well. But yeah, like you said, I mean, just disabling a spooler will not solve the issue. Although it might be a good, you know, starting point with nothing else in 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 hand, right? But what you see is that why people still had their principle enabled on the domain controller is, of course, because of pruning of printer objects in Active Directory, which is something you could do manually, but the spooler will take care of it for you on the DC. However, mostly it wasn't used as a spooler itself to really make sure that you print something from a print queue. And that's interesting because we do still print, even with distributed offices and people working from home, printing is still something that happens. But like uh, you asked publicly, like, what's the way forward? Shouldn't we really rethink the whole printing challenge? Because having principles everywhere, even on domain controllers, is something that will not be sustainable going forward. I hope so, because when a vulnerability exists in such a thing as the principaler, then the whole IT infrastructure can be probably vulnerable and that is not what we want so hopefully we get a patch as soon as possible because nowadays it's only a workaround to mitigate this issue at the moment so hopefully that patch will be there soon but if we look at the second issue that was print nightmare but after print nightmare we're hitting into some kaseya hack we already discussed it a few hours early but within the kaseya hack it was a supply chain attack alex I think the only good news about this hack is that it's not really a supply chain attack. I mean, what turned out to be is that, you know, the attackers were able to abuse the Cassia VSA service, which normally are used to, you know, connect to different services and a lot of MSPs use it. And what they did is actually they detected some vulnerabilities, like a couple of them, and kind of patched the servers with the different victims today with malicious software code. So this is also a behavior that we have seen within other bigger and, and even more harmful and also professional attacks, for example, with a VLC player and other software. But the good thing is it's not really a supply chain attack that you could somehow compare to, to SolarWinds and, and the nightmare around that. 
Uh, if we compare that to SolarWinds, SolarWinds was definitely a supply chain attack where code was rewritten so it can be used by the hacker. And uh, within the Kaseya hack, it's only a vulnerability in the VSA, the agent that is running on external systems at customer systems. How can we detect if we are vulnerable for the Kaseya hack, uh, Olaf? Well, I think it's primarily coming down to the basics that you usually monitor for, where that process is suddenly starting executing processes that you wouldn't expect it to be running. And this is where you can definitely have the, if you have Defender for Endpoint, for instance, running on these servers, you can definitely look for the anomalies there. Yeah, that's about it. I, I, I didn't dig into this one that deep since I don't have any clients that, that utilize this, fortunately. So I was still on the printer and the certificate party. <laughs> yeah, well, the, that party changed over the weekend. <laughs> but you did see that Florian Roth, who is a big champion in uh, writing Sigma rules and essentially also the Sigma language itself, he posted a nice rule because after that Kaseya vulnerability was abused, you saw a certain script running at those clients and at those MSSPs that disabled, for instance, real-time monitoring from Windows Defender AV. It ran a couple of things to sideload a certain DLL. And there's been some good rules out there already for process creation, for instance, that you can follow along with that will actually tell you if that specific script had been run. But certainly from that point on, when the DLL was sideloaded, it really depends on uh, on what they ran next. But probably a crypto uh, process. So from that point, you're uh, from a detection standpoint, uh, a bit late already. And if we look at the sort of attacks where a software vendor is compromised, uh, like SolarWinds, where a software code is rewritten so it can be used, or this sort of attack within the Kaseya attack, if a software vendor is compromised, our customers or clients can also be compromised at that moment. Is there something what we can do to protect ourselves with that, Olaf, for example? Yeah, it is difficult, right? Because the, the biggest mantra in security is patch and update. So this, first of all, breaks that trust relationship quite significantly. But still, generally, it's good practice to not always apply anything directly in production and first have a testing and, or an acceptance environment, especially for updates that don't have a significant security impact which in this case, it had the adverse one, but you don't always know that up front. Having a patching cycle where you first patch everything that isn't critical in an acceptance environment, then you might be a little bit later and not be impacted by this. But apart from that, it's just make sure at least that you have your monitoring of your known processes in place so that if it starts acting anomalously, that you'll at least be able to catch that. Alex? I just looked up the numbers because I love this statement. It has been on a blog by Microsoft. We can also link the URL below the episode uh, where um, Scott Christensen, he explained a little bit in this blog post how Microsoft attacks you know, vulnerabilities. And there was one statement that I really liked because it brings the whole you know, issue to the point that every time then you know, blames a software vendor for having a bug. But even, you know, I'd say, of course, highly skilled guys at Microsoft that develop software day by day do a lot of bugs. And he said 47,000 developers generate nearly 30,000 bucks a month. That's the plain numbers that you know, Microsoft is, is facing. And with everything that Ola said, the, the whole you know, life cycle of how do you identify uh, vulnerabilities and just bugs 
in a software is absolutely important, but it's also super challenging to really keep that continuous process up on a very high quality level and be somehow on the edge or on top of the whole, you know, finding the more critical ones and solving them. And even, I mean, we just heard, right, that for the spooler uh, thing, uh, we do not have a patch yet. I mean, that also, I think, highlights how challenging it from time to time is to write secure code and bring that to a, again, secure level and not open the next door because you closed the other one, right? Yeah. Martin, anything to add? Well, I think one of the strategies uh, you could look at is zero trust because even the most reputable third parties could at some point turn hostile because of a human error or malicious intent or compromise like uh, here is the case. So for me, zero trust means that your organization performs risk assessments of all of third parties and you must assume that something will eventually go wrong. And so you're starting to implement mitigations like monitor administrators or administrative rights, maybe implement a privileged account management, but also micro-segmentation or EDR, XDR, or of course, managed detection response capabilities. So I think there's a ton of things you could do that are quite general as part of a zero trust strategy, but specifically for this compromise, well, it's a hard thing to, uh, to know ahead of time, but most companies are still from what I'm seeing, waiting to define a strategy and then execute on the strategy and spend time and money to become safer. To me, it really doesn't matter where you start as long as you start chopping away at it and start adding security controls with a certain vision behind it. You will already be safer than you were yesterday. Yeah, and if we look at you already mentioned uh, XDR, EDR and all that sort of stuff that also Microsoft is bringing onto the table. But is the community the security community, also something that can add value into this area? Martin? Uh, no. No, just kidding. <laughs> of course, I think everybody on this uh, podcast is part of the Microsoft community uh, and the broader security community. So I think what you see is that everybody's scrambling once we find out what's happening on how to share information, how to make sure that we uh, start mitigating um, and maybe publish information that will help everybody. So. The community certainly helps, and some of these things that were published, like the IOCs or the Sigma rules, really, really help. Of course, you saw, I think, over the past few days that Microsoft updates their tech quite quickly, and because some of them are cloud-enabled, you do get some of the detections and insights into the product directly. So it's a, it's a matter of both. It's not or the community or the vendor. I think one amplifies the other. Yeah, good. I think that is great to be part of that community uh, also. When we look at Microsoft tools within this area, what is advanced hunting and how can we use that, Olaf? I'm not sure how advanced it is, but the hunting tab that is called advanced hunting within the Defender portal is a gateway into a lot of the telemetry that is recorded by, for instance, the Defender for Endpoints agent. And it gives you a lot of flexibility to query that through the Cousteau language, which is one of my favorite query languages uh, without being uh, biased. But it's, it's highly flexible. It's, it's quite quick and it allows you to iterate over, over at least a month of telemetry that you have within the Defender portal uh, quite rapidly and maybe even combine it together with uh, some email logs or some identity logs, uh, these kind of things that are all now gathered there. 
You mentioned EDR, Microsoft Defender for Endpoint. Can we use KQL or other language? Can we use it broader than only Defender for Endpoint? Yeah, Microsoft made the wise choice to use this as their default query language for all the logging, at least as far as I know, in the uh, in the whole Azure environment. So you can use this if you have an Azure Data Explorer cluster, you can use it against the log analytics workspaces for Sentinel. And you can also use it within almost every uh, Defender product that's, uh, that they have. So it's, it's quite standardized on that matter. Yeah, and KQL. If I would learn KQL, Alex, what should I do? Start with the syntax, like the, the real basics. Try to create some very simple queries and, and understand how, how you can leverage the language to get data out of the different you know, systems. And then I always recommend to then go into, you know, SOC cases or incidents and, and try to look for information that is in your environment. And, and I mean, it's comparable to PowerShell, right? So learn coding as you go. Is there some online guidance somewhere? Olaf, for example? Yeah, Microsoft has the Ninjas trainings that are actually really nice. So for every Defender platform, at least, and also for Sentinel, they do provide you with a sort of step-by-step introduction how to utilize the portal. There is some hunting in there, so they learn a little bit about uh, about some of the queries. GitHub is full of them, of course. But, uh, Microsoft has a big repository that has a lot of uh, Custo rules, and there's a lot of them out in the community. I have a quite active GitHub repository, and there's a lot of researchers sharing them. So that is a good way to at least have a look what other people are creating. And on top of that, there's also uh, in the Defender portal, you have the threat, uh, what is it called? Threat Analytics tab, where they also share some threat intelligence together with the Custo queries that you could immediately execute as well. And also your your colleague, uh, Gianni Casaldi from, from Votel, I think he has a great blog up there, acoustoking.com, where you can get all types of level of entry and, and also some great use cases and detections. Um, so, so that I think is also a, a great source to mention. And if we want to use KQL, we need data. When talking about data, if I connect several systems to a SIEM solution like Azure Sentinel, should I collect all logs within Azure Sentinel to use KQL on that or use it differently and have that filled in another way? Olaf? Not a big fan of just firehosing everything into a central solution. It must make sense. So if you enable something, you also need to think about what you want to do with it. And if you might think, hey, I might need this later for a forensic purpose or whatever reason, then it could make sense. But I'd first focus on the stuff that you can actually build detections against or know that is of value for you at that moment. And start utilizing that first and then start expanding that because otherwise you're basically swamping yourself with stuff that you either get distracted by or don't know what to do with yet. So then you're spending a lot of money on on things that you don't utilize. But one thing to this, because uh, Olaf and Martin, I think you guys have seen a lot of SIEM solutions. And, and what you just said, Olaf, that's exactly how I experienced SIEM in the past. Like a large data lake where every organization just feeds in as much as they have in terms of security events and then mainly does not so much with it but has the information if they need so what's your experience on that if i may 
Yeah, it's it's exactly the same. Usually uh, people aren't sure of what they need to work with. So they just sort of hoard everything because it might be useful or at least they covered that compliance stick where they locked everything to a central logging location. So yeah, it makes maybe sense for some companies because they have uh, very deep pockets and very uh, strict compliance regulations, which still maybe challenge those. But it doesn't make sense from a practical perspective. Well, and compliance shouldn't be a tick in the box where uh, I'm just doing it because the paper says so and we're trying to achieve something and uh, be sensible about it. But getting that data, you should only collect data that you can handle. That's essentially what you should do. And um, the other thing we're seeing with threat hunting specifically, which is quite a almost an expert task because it's not only about learning a query language or trying to find the data in there, but also can you analyze the data? Are you, do you understand what you're seeing? And for instance, can you compare it against the baseline or some other delta in time or like a plain vanilla config? So even if you are sensible at data, I challenge my clients, like, how are you going to do threat hunting? Because uh, it's almost a profession by itself. It's very useful, but uh, yeah, working the data, analyzing the data is, is not for the faint of heart. No, Alex, I think you have another question. Sorry if I, uh, you know, um, take over <laughs> the questions here, but I, I'm, I'm really curious about, uh, about your experience here, Martin and, and Olaf. We recently had a lot of, you know, customers that came and asked, what's your recommendation on having Microsoft 365 Defender or another EDR solution, Azure Sentinel and a third party seam in that sense? Is that something that, that you guys experience as well that, you know, the, the need and the idea of having Azure Sentinel side by side with our QRadar, Splunk, whatever solution makes sense? I would say that some enterprises already have invested in some of these solutions and they've built processes around it and maybe an operation center around it. And they're still ingesting a whole lot of data from other sources. But when they start looking at how to audit their clouds or modern endpoints, we typically see that at least it's going to be a coexistence scenario where Azure Sentinel will complement the bigger architecture. Interestingly enough, what we also then find is that they're not really happy with their current big SIM solution. It's costly. It's a lot of time and energy to maintain. It's perhaps not modern in a way that it has this effective query language that we have with KQL. So Often we already get into a question about shouldn't we start thinking about replacing that solution. But if you're today a medium or, or big company and if you haven't invested on SIM yet, I would find it hard to find other convincing reasons to start with another SIM than one that matches your cloud posture, whether it's for Microsoft or for somebody else. You need a modern solution to work in these modern times. Olaf, anything to add? I have a similar experience where you see that they first adopt Sentinel for their for their cloud space because it makes more sense. It doesn't have to pay for all the transfer and all the doc stories locally. But after a while, a lot of them, either because they like the query language more or the platform more, or that doesn't make sense to maintain the knowledge of two query languages, which I can, from experience, tell you is, is confusing a lot. Uh, I have a lot of clients where they use a local one and the Sentinel solution, and then also have Defender for Endpoint. So you have three portals that you have to query, you have two languages that you have to keep up to. And after a while, that's, that's not really effective for a full SOC, right? So it's fine for a hunter because they only do querying, 
But if you're an analyst and you have to click through all these portals and these different languages, interfaces and so on, it doesn't really make sense. So then usually if they have invested into that whole ecosystem on the Microsoft side, you see them uh, switching uh, over time definitely towards that. But if you don't have a SIM yet, then uh, it might make sense to get all that Defender data maybe there first or only the alerts and handle them in the portal. Yeah, what I've seen at a few customers at our side is that they have a current SIM solution. They're testing with Sentinel, especially for the Microsoft Cloud solutions. And if that's good, then they switch over most of the times. I don't think that is one real scenario that has both running next to each other. When it comes like a SIM solution, we talked about uh, Azure Sentinel, but if we are in a hybrid situation, Azure Sentinel focusing on cloud solutions, but when using on-prem stuff, can I connect and how can I connect that to Azure Sentinel? But there are a few connectors, I think, in the, in the store. But if that is available within Azure Sentinel, what about the data? What can an analyst doing with all that on-prem stuff? Olaf. With the assumption that it's feeding into Sentinel, I guess, right? So yeah, you can build all kinds of correlation rules and that when it starts become very powerful, when you can combine, for instance, your, your local firewalls with your Defender for Endpoint telemetry or your proxy logs, if you, if you even want to ingest them into Sentinel, because that can become quite costly, but you can correlate data. So you can, you can basically combine multiple data types into one very solid rule that will give you hopefully less false positives and only trigger you on stuff that you actually care about. And if I have uh, that on-prem stuff, for example, a firewall or a network device or uh, other stuff, if one of the analysts only uses normally uh, cloud solutions and doing stuff with that, is it needed to have knowledge of that on-prem system as well for a SOC analyst? Olaf? Yeah, that's a hard question. I, I think, of course, because how can you justify otherwise assigning it to a true or false positive? I think you at least need to understand the basics of how the system works. And ideally, you, you know a little bit more or you flag it as, I don't know, and you escalate it to a higher tier level to a person that actually knows something about it. Yeah, yeah, I agree with that. It's, it's a hard question. Isn't that always the, the moment of point in time being in the SecOps process where you should reach out to the, you know, kind of lead for that application or for that, you know, whatever solution we're looking in, I, I would also try to, even as a managed service provider, try to connect with the customer and, and try to talk to the people that set up this kind of solution and, and identify, you know, exactly which information do I want to get out of uh, the solution as well. Yeah, basically, there are two options. One, you have the knowledge in-house. And the second is you have an alignment with a partner or with a customer so you can reach out to that knowledge. That is basically the two options I think that, that they are. What are common mistakes when we using Microsoft Defender Solutions or Sentinel? Martin, what do we see from a customer perspective? Are there common mistakes? Well, I think a lot of companies start just implementing tech without a strategy. So... Uh... I would say the first step is to understand whether there is a strategy where this tech deployment will uh, be part of. And again, zero trust or some form of strategy makes perfect sense. It doesn't need to be perfect, but make sure that it's strategic. And secondly, of course, we see a lot of tech then just deploy everywhere, enable everything, and just find yourself in a sea of alerts and trying to make sense of it all. 
you would think that they would do some sort of top-down approach where you're trying to figure out your environment, have it part of a risk management strategy, maybe build some use cases around crown jewels, and then start ramping up once you find that your people or your MSSP can handle it. But to me, it's not just enabling tech everywhere. It needs to be way smarter than that. Olaf? Yeah, I actually want to tie into that second uh, second point where Marta said that they just enable it. And then from my experience, usually just they think it's a sort of plug and play solution. They plug it in or they enable Defender for whatever, and they assume that they're safe by then. But this is only the start. And they, yeah, not every company, of course, is capable of doing this. But ideally, you would assess to see if it's actually covering the threats that you're worried about or should be worried about. And then ideally, understand where the blind spots are, even from the telemetry part or from the alerting part. So you need to test also whenever you've implemented this, how effective it is for you. And this is often forgotten. Yeah, absolutely. And Martin, you mentioned use cases. That's a term that is used quite a lot. What is a use case? What is that? Well, I must say the whole taxonomy thing in the cybersecurity world hasn't been standardized. So if I'm talking use case, it might be that somebody else is looking at it some other way. But to me, it's the bigger picture you paint around a certain asset or a certain application or a certain crown jewel you're trying to protect. So you're trying to enable insights with uh, preferably two or more sources. So you have high fidelity, true positives coming out. So use cases are, to me, certainly also detection part, but the use case could also be what's the actionable or what's the action that you can do once that alert is raised and perhaps through a SOAR platform automated. But uh, so detection, responses, the whole shebang together could be a use case. To me, what is not a use case, a single alert or a single rule, that's not a use case to me. So it's more about combining, correlating it into a bigger picture, but making it actionable. That's something that's, uh, that I would say differentiates a use case. We talked about common mistakes for customers, but do we have also common mistakes for consultants or partners that are implementing this stuff, Alex? Ooh, how much time do you have? Um, I think... I would um, add on to what Olaf said in the beginning that customers just, you know, throw technology on, on problems and do not really understand their challenge. I mean, there's a lot to, to talk about that, right? I mean, we always try to give the customer in the very beginning of our engagement a big picture of where Microsoft is going with the whole Microsoft XDR approach. And then the next step is to really understand what they may be coming from a other solution, Microsoft solution, coming from a third-party AV EDR solution, maybe having a SIEM solution that is not Sentinel in place, how everything can work together and really define what Martin just said, that something like a strategy, a big picture, and then break it down to use cases on how we implement and improve and design and set up a process that is not ended by rolling out anything, but just have something that is a continuous process where we look on midterm strategy to improve the security environment and the security posture in general. That I think is the correct approach. And stuff that is far away from that, I think, would be a wrong approach and a mistake. 
more or less. I, I would try to, to explain it that way. Yeah. And if we look at the things that we are doing at our customers, how is Microsoft doing in this area around the security space, in your opinion, Alex? You mean with their strategy to, to go more yeah. holistic? I think, like, I mean, we all agreed, Olaf, when he said that good that they have decided to go with KQL as the, you know, default query language in Microsoft Solutions and also what Martin said, to have this best of suite approach by also having the best solutions in the Gartner Quadrant or whatever, that's, of course, the, the aim that Microsoft is going. I think the integration is at one or the other point still a bit on the path and not at the destination, right? I mean, uh, for example, looking at the integration between Microsoft 365 Defender and Sentinel, or generally speaking, Azure, there is improvement space um, that, that Microsoft can and, and will for sure take. I'm super excited uh, personally about the direction that Microsoft is heading when it comes to IoT, OT, and enterprise IoT security. Uh, because that, I've, I think, personally is interesting approach. We all, I think, know and agree that Microsoft has had a weak spot in the past, which has been network security or the network level in general. And by acquiring uh, vendors like CyberX or Reform Lab, I think they, of course, brought in very good solutions that somehow close these gaps, right? So, uh, yeah, that I think uh, exciting and, and I, generally speaking, think, of course, that Microsoft is doing well here. Yeah, when talking about network security, Martin, was that a lack in the whole space? And do we make good steps forward on that? The thing is, what's network security, right? Because if you look at what the endpoint detection uh, does with Defender for IT, it still captures information on what's happening at your endpoint it detects, it responds, and it uh, it blocks where needed. But certainly, if you look at some of the more general networks with our firewalls and other types of devices, like Olaf said, it's good to have that information to correlate and understand whether or not something is a true positive and have a higher fidelity of alerting. However, I would challenge today that most of these companies are becoming distributed companies with COVID people working from home, maybe even uh, two or three days a week uh, going forward. We're not going to monitor everybody's router at home. So what network traffic should we still log and alert about? Would it be just on the endpoint? Would it be in our hybrid cloud or in Azure? So we're starting to reevaluate what we should do from a network security standpoint. But having that raw data from the traditional types of equipment into Azure Sentinel, correlating it with our XDR information will give us a good picture if needed. But again, look at your strategy. Are you going to still have everybody in your office locations? And does it make sense to just start collecting all of the traditional devices as part of it? Yeah, and getting data is important. So when we're looking at threat and vulnerability management or analytics, is that a key component of the Microsoft stack, Olaf? It is an active component of it. I think they do a good job there, at least on the Defender for Endpoint bit, where they do some scanning on the endpoint where it's installed. It does provide you with some interesting insights into software versioning, but this is not the only way where the, the threat and vulnerability space is, I think, has their requirements. You can go a lot broader where you can also check for certain settings on machines and all these kind of things that it doesn't have the capability for yet, maybe, I don't know. 
it would be a great idea to uh, expand that. And this is only the signaling bit. Even if you assume that all that information is is complete, then still you need to do something with this. And they have the threat scores where they give you some guidance what you should be acting upon. But in a in a larger environment or even any environment, you should have a decent process around this as well, where you either test, validate, and then implement them also in your production environment. Yes, Martin? Well, I think threat and vulnerability management helps you in the proactive side of things because in general, a lot of these solutions will help you on the reactive side where something is spotted and perhaps uh, immediately blocked. And certainly if you're going to do threat hunting after the fact, then that's to some degree also reactive. With TVM, you're trying to stay ahead of the curve and trying to understand the posture of certain devices, apps or devices and from there on, take actionable measures before things happen. So DVM complements the picture, I would say, more on the proactive side, where before something happens, you could still uh, already be executing mitigations. Olaf? Yeah, to add to that, one of the cool things that Microsoft does that not a lot of the vendors do is where they also show you whether there's an exploit actively being abused for that vulnerability, which is actually very useful for everybody that is having to patch all these vulnerabilities. Because in most organizations where I come across, at least they have tens of thousands of patches that they're lacking. And then they have to justify rebooting a server for a certain reason. And if they can actually prove that it's being exploited that will help significantly into convincing uh, the whole change advisory board usually because it actually makes sense to do so and it isn't only to stay up to date. Isn't it somehow funny that we are having exactly this topic on convincing the change of advisory board for 15 years now in IT and it's still a thing although we see Exactly with this so-called, you know, supply chain attack that vulnerability abuse is still on top of all the incidents or on the majority of them, at least. Yeah, I think IT has the general issue of being very repeatable with this issue. So it's not only patching, but it's also implementation where a lot of people don't really segment. So all the stuff that we mentioned before, and usually, I mean, it's not always laziness of course it's there's there's all kinds of reason where either legacy or there's another reason but it doesn't have to be an excuse and even today it is possible to transform a large environment into a very secure one but it's also where the board and the upper management at least needs to take more responsibility and actually commit to changing this and this is not always the case because there's often uh, companies that I still talk to where they say that's probably not going to happen to us but that can't be said anymore right it's a nice idea and I hope it for them but it's not very likely uh, without giving them the FUD story it is assuming at least that you need yeah you want to be safe regardless they also have a lock on their house I would suggest they start saving on bitcoins already <laughs> <laughs> yeah why not I think there was some message last weekend. There's 1 billion on Bitcoins, 30,000 Bitcoins that are, are gone. Someone has died and no one has access to that Bitcoin. So probably we have to do some, somewhat within uh, that cryptos. If you look at the future and also at the history, uh, attacks are coming more and more. They are bigger and bigger. They have more impact and so on and so on. If we look at the past, what should we learn from that? Martin? That everybody will be a victim of cyber 
exploits, crime, gangs, everything, unless you start preparing today. Uh, and even then, that's not a guarantee, but this will not slow down. This will not become smaller. This will be part of how we run IT. And so we need to really invest time, energy, and money to, to try and tackle this and maybe a bit broader, think of as, as a board of a company, think about your risk management, including your cyber posture as part of that risk management program, and not just only for fire or floods or anything. Cyber is the next big chapter for you to tackle as a risk officer. And uh, we as partners, we have a big will to win, uh, Alex. Yeah, that's that's true. Nothing to add. I mean... <laughs> It's uh, it is true. We we do have a lot to prove, and also it's uh, it's a it's a continuous learning journey here. I tell everybody today to to look into preach and tax simulation because I I'm convinced that I mean we're talking about the things that happened, like we already explained, right? So everything that we have talked about today is reactive security, and I I, I think a lot of organizations do not have a clue at all on how real threats and and real incidents would behave in their environments and and therefore i personally am convinced that breach and tech simulation will be a thing will be a topic in in the future so maybe that's a good approach Ola, one last message that you want to give to the ones that are listening yeah i, th I think we'll start repeating ourselves but it's um Essentially, try to make the most use of the tools you actually have before you buy a new one. And especially if, if you have a pretty decent EDR, try to get as much value out of it because there's so much that it doesn't alert on by default. And that's the same for most of the products. And definitely also look at everything that's old, right? They're still do, you doing macros and we still need them, but there's a lot of ways that we can detect weird stuff about it. And it's the same for DCOM, WMI. A lot of the old stuff is still new. That's the same for the certificate issues that we have now. That's been around for decades, and it's now being actually researched well enough that it's being exploitable, but that, that, that lack has been there already. So plugging all the older holes before you start investing into the new stuff might make a lot of sense to do. In my opinion, what I heard from uh, all three of you, uh, keep your processes on top of that. So patching, uh, one of the key things, know where you are vulnerable and patch all that, that systems. Maarten, Olaf, Alex, thank you all for being here on the show. We've learned a lot about the actual case Kaseya and the print nightmare, how we can use Microsoft tooling to get insights, what we can do with advanced hunting with a Sentinel as a seam solution, how we connect that. So thank you all for, uh, for being here. Thank you, Franz. Thank you for having me. And of course, as always, thank you for listening to this episode. This was the last recording before the summer break. So I will be back in September this year with a brand new recording. Until then, bye-bye.